Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. Hope you're doing well on this chilly fall day or winter or whatever it is that's happening here in North Carolina. We're we're glad that you're here with us. And uh, before we jump into God's Word, I just want to say thank you uh, to all the people that served this weekend. Uh, Friday and Saturday, we had our Southbridge Serves weekend. We had over 200 volunteers uh, serving a different 12. Yeah, for sure. Give them a hand. Give everybody that served a hand. And uh, we had uh, about, it was, I think it was about 700 volunteer hours or something I, I was told, about 12 different projects, different places. And I know some of you did things that weren't even part of the projects we lined up. And so uh, this morning, as I was just uh, praying for you and thinking about preaching the Word to you, I was just so thankful to be able to pastor a church that doesn't want to just hear the word but wants to go and do it. And so I just want to say thank you to you for doing that. And uh, we, we know that we gather together and we celebrate Jesus, but we want to go out and be the church in our community. And uh, you were doing that this weekend. And so I just want to say thank you so much uh, for being awesome. And uh, some of you maybe didn't sign up for a, a service opportunity through Southbridge Serves. I just hope that you know. God's put you in your world and your sphere of influence so that you can impact those people for Jesus. And if you haven't been doing that, um, I hope that God sparked something in your heart today. If you have been doing that, I just want to thank you too uh, for your faithfulness and praying for coworkers and caring for people that you come in contact with in whatever way, shape, or form that you do that. Uh, just thank you so much uh, for doing that as a church. And then also, I wanted to give you an announcement before we jumped in uh, to the message today. And that is, hopefully you received an email this week about our campus orientation. And if you didn't receive that email and you want emails from us. Uh, if you don't want emails, it's totally fine. Uh, but if you want emails from us, if you take your connection card that we have all of our first-time guests fill out, you'll hear about that at the end of the service, and uh, just write, print your email on it. Print it with nicest handwriting you possibly have. You may have to hand it to your neighbor, some of you. I understand that. Uh, but print your email on that card. Turn it in and say you want the emails. But what came out this week is we're doing our campus orientation on November 26th. And so that's a Monday after Thanksgiving. If your relatives are still in town, bring them with you. We'd be glad to meet them and give you something to do with them. But on November 26th, um, at our campus, it's not just a sneak peek uh, preview of, of what's going to happen on December 9th, but it is that. We're gonna have a, if you've ever been to like a, uh, a college orientation where the freshmen come in before the sophomores and the juniors and the seniors get there, and it's not just so, you know, some random person doesn't tell you that your class is on the lake somewhere far away, but they're trying to build a little comfort for you and what happens at that place, and you learn some things that you may never apply to your life for the next four years of college, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to come together. We're going to celebrate uh, together as a church. And then we're also going to send you on a tour with a small group of folks, kind of like a campus tour. And you're going to go to six different stations. Some of those stations might be places you would never serve at. Like it's just not your gifting or you don't connect there. We still want you to know what's going on there. And it's not to try and recruit you into serving there, although if that happens, that's awesome. But the goal is because you're going to bump into people that have never been to our church before, and they're going to want to know about stuff, and we don't want you to be clueless about what's happening, even if you've gone to our church for a while. And so the more people that come on November 26th, the better December 9th is going to be when we launch, okay? So you're invited, and we hope that you can make it from 6 to 8 p.m., on November 26th at the new campus. We're going to have a meal there, so you don't have to eat before you come. We're going to eat. It's even a Christian meal. We're gonna, I think we're going to have Chick-fil-A. And so you come on out there. Um, but we're going to hang out. We're gonna have, it's basically going to be like a party together, but we're going to pray through the campus over there too. We're going to have a good time with each other. You're going to learn some stuff. If you might have some ideas of things we've never thought of, we'd love for you to share those ideas at that time. So that, that's a great time together. November 26th, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Hope to see you there. 
Um, and I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump into the Word. Also, if you're new to our church, that's a great thing to come to to learn about, learn about us. But we're having a lunch after church today if you're new, and I'd love to meet you. So come on over to that. It'll be out in the, in the lobby, in the cafeteria, whatever we call it. It's a cafeteria most of the week. We call it a lobby. But out there, we'll be out there together. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll jump into John chapter 21 today. Father, thank you that you're real. You're not some idea or concept in our minds, not some crutch to help us get through life. But you are a real father and a good father. And you sent your son. He really is somebody for us to relate to and you want a relationship with us through him. And Father, I pray that we would encounter you today. That we wouldn't just talk about an encounter that happened a couple thousand years ago. That we wouldn't just have a series called Encounters. But will you come and invade our lives? Will you, will you step into, and if that means stepping on toes in people's lives, do that. Will you step into people's lives? That means bringing healing into their life. Physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing. God, will you do something supernatural in our time together today? Will you move in our midst, please? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 21 today. As you turn there to John chapter 21, I wanted us to start off with doing a survey together as a church. I've always been told that we live in basketball country. You know, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, we're kind of known as like the, the, the whole, no sports season really starts until March for us. All this other stuff is like pregame, uh, whether it's football or baseball or golf or any of that stuff. But I think that we have a diverse congregation. And so I'm going to say different sports names. If that's your favorite sport, will you just make noise back to me? I don't care what you say. You can say the name of your team. You can just yell and holler. Unless you're Todd, I don't want to hear anything about Notre Dame. Everybody else, we're glad. I see his shirt sitting over there. Uh, but we'll start. some of you watched college football yesterday, so we'll start with football. How many of you are football fans? That's your sport. All right, that was strong. That was stronger than first service. I like that. That's my sport. How about baseball? You got baseball fans? Quite, I, got, I said a comment a couple weeks ago. Cubs, all right, got to go over here. I said a comment about not being a baseball fan. I got emails from y'all. I hope you still go to our church. Um, thank you. Uh, that's not necessarily my sport, but some of you, soccer, soccer, you think? A couple soccer moms out there yelling, a couple dads, soccer dads. All right, what about, um, I don't want to miss, oh, somebody came to me after the first service and they said, what if you don't like any sports? You didn't give that option. Is there anybody here that doesn't like any sports? All right, there you go. You got to say something. There you go. Uh, what about, uh, how about, what's another big one? Hockey, hockey. I'm going to do basketball last. Hold on, basketball. Hockey, we got hockey. We got like a gentleman clap for hockey. That's, I didn't expect that. I thought hockey was, woo, more rowdy. Uh, and so I'm going to put, let's just do other. And by other, I'll do uh, rugby, golf, running, paper mache stuff, like whatever. Like just all the sports, NASCAR, like any other all right, we got some others out there. That's good. And then we'll do basketball last. Basketball? Thunder! Thunder. We got teams, Tar Heels. We got different teams out there. All right, I don't know. I think football might have got it. We'll go with basketball because of where we're at. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But here's the deal. Some of you that are basketball fans, you know that the college basketball season tipped off, didn't kick off, tipped off this past Tuesday. And I was, my daughter's birthday was this week, and she's an NC State fan. And so I took her to the NC State versus Mount St. Mary's basketball game. I don't know if you saw that game or not. It was a real nail-biter. Um, it ended with NC State, 105 points. And Mount St. Mary's, I think either there at 50 or 55. It was irrelevant, so I'm not sure how many points they had. Um, but when I was watching the game, it was amazing. Now, either, and if you're an NC State fan, I know what your opinion is, but either... NC State has the most best sportsmanship, kindest, greatest guys on their basketball team ever, or they were mocking the other team. But I was there live, and I was watching, and when Mount St. Mary's would score a basket, at least once NC State was up by like 30 or 40, uh, they were cheering for the other team. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna think the best, right? That's what we should do about people. I'm gonna think that they were having good sportsmanship and they were cheering for them. But you know what? I never saw. 
I never saw a Mount St. Mary's player miss a three and an NC State player get a rebound and come over to him and go, you want to do that again? I never saw, you know, shooting a free throw. You know how they wave like those signs behind the free, the brick sign? Shooting a free throw. and No, they didn't miss a free throw. And then one of the NC State guys go, you know what? There's a big Dwight Schrute head behind the hoop. It's okay. Let's try that. Let's do it again. Because you know what happens in sports? You get to a certain level, and they take away the best part about sports. Doesn't matter what your favorite sport is. It's the do-over. Remember when you were a kid? Those of you who are baseball fans, remember when I was a kid, I used to play baseball on the street. Like we'd stand out in the middle of the road in some subdivision, and they'd throw the ball, and you'd hit the ball. And then sometimes it'd be in fair play, but there's like a tree in the way in somebody's front yard. The ball gets stuck up in the tree. All the guys that are out there pitching or whatever, they're complaining. They're like, that's not, we can't climb up in the, do-over. Or you're shooting a free throw. This happened to me all the time. I'm better with my mouth than I am with my body when it comes to basketball. And so I'm out there, shoot a free throw, miss the free. The wind started to gust, do over, do over. That they don't have that in the NBA. Give me the ball, do that over. You get, you get a, do, and it happens with little kids, right? Like we, our little girls, they play soccer. And there was a time when they were playing soccer when they were younger. Like none of them, it's the only time that you can use your hands in soccer is when you're throwing the ball back in. None of them can do that right for some reason. None of the little kids can. They don't put the ball away behind their head. They don't, lift, they don't keep their feet on the ground. And the referees are so kind when they're little, they'll come over and be like, I just, we want to teach you, you do it again. But eventually that stops. It's like, no, you lose the ball. The other team's getting the ball. Get a clue, kid. Like, you're going to figure it out the hard way. And can you imagine if in professional sports there were do-overs? Some of you baseball fans, can you imagine if like Justin Kershaw was pitching to the Boston Red Sox and the ball slips out of his hand a little early crank it out of the park. He goes, I'm using my do-over. That one didn't count. We're not going to do that one. Do-over. Or golf. Golf is great because if you're an adult, you still get do-overs, right? It's called a mulligan. That's my favorite part about golf. Every once in a while, I get invited to like a golf tournament because I'm a pastor and all pastors are supposed to be able to golf. I can't. But the mulligan's like the best thing. You like hit it in the water, you go mulligan and put it down and just pretend like that never happened. Let's just do it again. But can you imagine if like Phil Mickelson's in the Masters and like Phil would be the guy to do it, right? Because he's just going to go for it. That's why a lot of people like him. And Phil hits a ball into the water. And he's like, ah, do over. I haven't used one yet today. We're going to go with a mulligan. It's just, they say no. That's, this is the pros, Phil. Can't do that. Or field goal kicker. Like everybody gets mad at kickers. Like it's just kicking. Well, why don't you do it? They pay him like a half a million dollars a year because it's hard. And they go to kick it. Can you imagine if you had to kick an extra point at the end of a game? Do you guys see that Justin Tucker, the Ravens, had never missed one, like all of college, all of pros, and he missed one, missed an extra point, cost him the game a couple weeks ago? Can you imagine you missed that and you go, do over? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Wouldn't it be great in life if we got do overs? Wouldn't it be some certain areas in life? And we used to get do overs. Remember when you were a kid? Like, think about babies. Babies are living, breathing failures. <laughs> right? They can't even, there's a reason they wear diapers, okay? They can't do anything. But then you start to learn to do stuff. We all were babies, by the way, so I did just call you all a failure, and myself, so I'm still in there. But you start to walk, and you fall on your face, and everybody's like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> if you fall on your face today, I promise, no one's going to go, that was cute, to come over and pat you on the head. Like, something happens. Like, there's a time period where it's like, no, nope, that doesn't happen anymore. And so we got these big life decisions. You make an investment. It goes bad. You don't get a do-over. Wouldn't it be awesome if you did? Or in a relationship. You know how many times in my life I've said stupid stuff, sometimes from the stage, sometimes in a relationship, and you go, man, I wish I could just back up and put those words back in my mouth. Let me ask you this question before we get started in our passage today. If there was one area in your life where you could use a do-over, where would it be? 
If there was one spot in your life, maybe throughout your history, maybe it's just like this area where it's all the time happening in this certain realm, work, finances, marriage, whatever. If there's one area of your life where you could use a do-over, where would it be? I want you to get that answer in your mind, and I want you to have that in your mind as we walk through John chapter 21, and what we're going to do is we're going to encounter a God who's a God of second chances. Amen? And, and he doesn't give do-overs like you get to go back and relive the experience, but he can restore and redeem, and he always uses those failures. And so we're going to see that in John chapter 21. Some people wonder why John chapter 21 is even in the Bible, because the end of John chapter 20 was such a great ending to the gospel. And Jesus said, or John said that Jesus did all these things, or many signs that were done, could have been written, but John wrote these ones down so that you might believe in Jesus, and by believing that you would have life. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you've seen a huge contrast. John chapter 19, if you were here a couple weeks ago, that was a heavy Sunday. That's a dark chapter. They crucified your king. Remember Pilate says, do you want me to crucify your king? Talking about Jesus and the high priest and the Jews chant out, crucify him. And it was our sin that then nailed him to the cross. And he was crucified. And that was, that was a dark day. But then last week, we got to look at one of the, the brightest, the most glorious chapters in all the Bible. John chapter 20, he is risen. You were here. That's awesome. I told Shannon, I said, it felt like Easter again after, after the service last week. Because we saw that Jesus, he not only gives life, he gives victorious life for the Christian. That you don't have to be in bondage anymore. He comes to set the captives free, that there's no condemnation. And, and we saw this life in John chapter 20. So why is John chapter 21 even here? Well, as he's been talking through John chapter 20, a lot of it was like this, this group of people. He said Mary Magdalene at the beginning, but then it's like these 10 disciples, and it's the 10 disciples plus Thomas. And then there's this thing that's happened that nobody's talked about. It's like the elephant in the room. It's with Peter. Peter's blown it. Peter's a huge failure. Blown it worse than any of us have probably ever blown it. Publicly denying Jesus three times. And it's been over a week since Jesus first appeared to him. And they haven't talked about it. And so in John chapter 21, we, we get to see the conversation. And we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but we're going to focus in on verses 15 through 17. In the first 14 verses, what happens is I believe that Peter's sinning. And not every Bible person, commentator, scholar, whatever you want to call him, agrees with me. I'll talk to you about that in a little bit, a little bit later. But I believe that Peter's gone back to his old way of life. He's fishing again. That wasn't what he was commanded to do. He's in Galilee. He's fishing. And they're not catching anything. And it's eerily similar to when Peter was first called to follow Jesus. And Jesus says to them, cast your nets on the other side. And I think, I'm not a professional fisherman, but I'm going to guess they've tried that. It's all night. They've been out there. They haven't caught a thing. You don't think one of their seven of them, like, can put our brains together? Maybe there's fish on the other side of this boat. They, I think they probably... Jesus was divinely giving them an encounter with him. And John's so humble, he points out that he's the first one to realize that it was Jesus. And then Peter, he gets out of the boat. He didn't walk on water this time, though. He sinks, he swims up there. He starts trudging through there. He gets up to the shore, and then Jesus already has fish. <laughs> they just had a miraculous catch, and I think, what a picture for us. Jesus is going to use us. He doesn't need us. He's already got fish on a charcoal fire, and they eat breakfast. He doesn't bring up the conversation until after they eat breakfast. Jesus is so gracious and patient and gentle with us. And then look at John chapter 21 and verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, 
you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Talking about Jesus again, he said, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had, to, had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's interesting, the demeanor of Peter that we see here in this passage is different than the Peter that we usually see in the Bible, isn't it? You know, you know everything. He's grieved, like there's this somberness. And usually you've got this boisterous guy. Like, he rebukes Jesus one time. It didn't go well for him. Jesus calls him Satan. But he does it. He goes for it, right? In that moment. He gets out of the boat. He walks on water. He's like, if everybody else denies you, not me, I'm in. There's a different Peter here. Do you know what's happened to Peter? His pride has been crushed. He's not the same boisterous guy here. Still passionate. We're going to see that later in the Bible. But, but not as self-confident. And that's a good thing. Because if you want to have an encounter with the restoring, the restoring God, he's going to destroy your pride. In fact, our, our first point is simply that today, that, that God's restoration requires destroying your pride. Not just pride in general. God's restoration. You want to experience the, restoring, the healing power, the God of second chances? God's restore, restoration requires destroying your pride. And I want you to, before we jump back into the passage, I want you to get a picture in your mind of destruction. And so maybe you've seen that before. Maybe you've watched the History Channel. You've seen when they drop an atomic bomb. Or you've seen like simulations of nuclear warfare or a tsunami or something burned down or whatever pops in your mind of a picture of destruction. You've seen something where there was a, a plane flying into a building or an accident that took place. Things are in ruins. And I want you to hold that picture in your mind because oftentimes what happens in those scenarios, maybe a car accident, you ever seen a car get hit by a train, bus, semi-truck, something that's way bigger, way stronger than it? Do you know what the Bible says if we have pride in our lives? And pride, you can find pride because you see somebody who has a victim mentality, that's a proud person. You see somebody who's self-absorbed and cocky, that's obviously a proud person. You see somebody who's self-righteous, judgmental, thinking about other people rather than themselves, thinks too much about themselves, that's pride. Those are all signs of pride. And they're at war with God. So think about going to war with an omnipotent, all-powerful being who could destroy you with a thought annihilate you. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, decades after this encounter, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So some of you have pride in your life, and, and you can't experience the restoration of God in your life because you're actually at war with God. And you just sit there and think, well, I have, I'm proud, but it's, it's so hard not to be. I'm so awesome. <laughs> or you're just selfish like all of us. Or you're judgmental. Or you're, you, you didn't blow it in this way, and you've blown it a bunch of ways, and you'll admit that, but not this thing. So you think you're better than other people. That's pride. That means you're, God opposes you. you see, that, that's the Bible. That's not me making this stuff up. And do you think when Peter wrote that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, maybe he was thinking about this encounter in John chapter 21? When he was at war with God, and he didn't even know it. He was boasting about all he was going to do for God. Now, in the Bible... There was this proverb, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, before Peter did any of this. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
And we see, I can give you example after example from the Bible of God dealing with, but we know that it's happening because we see the commentary on it in the Bible. We oftentimes don't know what's happening in our own lives. Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, he stands up. He says in Daniel chapter four, he says, he looks out at his kingdom and he says, this is for the glory of my majesty. And then God strikes him with insanity. But we know that God's the one who did it because the Bible tells us. You don't necessarily know it in everyday life here today. Reading the, in the book of Acts, it says there's a guy, his name's Herod. He comes out, Acts chapter 12, and then people are saying, he speaks like a God, not a man. And he's just glorying in it rather than re- refusing that I'm not a God. And so then God strikes him down. The Bible says he smote him. I think, wow, oh, have I ever seen someone be smote? Well, that's an interesting word. And then how did it happen? A lot of times we think there's like thunder from, like lightning from heaven wipes him out. No, it says he got worms and he died because of his pride. He's at war with God. Some of us are at war with God. We don't even know it. Peter was. He didn't even know it. He thought he was serving God, but it was all about his own strength. And so context for this encounter, the whole thing goes back to John chapter 13. Think about his experience. Try and imagine this experience and this conversation through the eyes of Peter. You were there in John chapter 13. Jesus comes to wash your feet. You go, no, 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 not my feet. Nope, nope, you're the Lord. <laughs> Sometimes pride looks like humility. It's fake. Amen. Not my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you got nothing to do with me. Then all of me, I'm all in, Jesus. That's boisterous Peter, by the way. And Jesus tells them, you know, I'm going to get betrayed by one of you. You're going to deny me before, before the morning comes. Three times you're going to deny me. And Matthew tells us, he says, no, not me, not ever me. I don't know what all these other guys are going to do, my interpretation. I don't know about these losers, but I'm with you, Jesus. You got me. I'll go with you to the death. Well, Thomas has already said that. We talked about Thomas last week. There's Peter, and we all know what happens. John chapter 18. We looked at John chapter 18 already. Judas sells Jesus out, literally sells him out. Betrays him with a kiss. Peter tries to cut a dude's ear off. He's trying to be bold, like I'm here. You know, Pastor Dave says he just whacked him in the head. I think he was more like a ninja, had some skills. Like, how do you get an ear? Gotta get an ear, Pastor Dave. Gotta get the ear. That's something else. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. He whacked a guy's ear off. He's being bold for Jesus. And then, and then what happens? They take Jesus away. He goes to the high priest's courtyard, and John and Peter follow. And they go to the high priest's courtyard, and John knows somebody. So they get in. And then Peter's there, and a little girl comes up to him. Hey, are you one of his disciples? I don't know that man. And he goes over to a charcoal fire. He's warming himself by the fire. And the group around the fire starts to say, aren't you Galilean? Aren't you with him? I don't, I don't know that man. And he goes away from the fire. And then a guy comes up. It's Malchus' relative. You remember who Malchus is, right? It's the guy who got his ear chopped off. And his relative says to Peter, weren't you out in the garden? Aren't, weren't you with him? Now let me just tell you something. Peter wasn't just an extra out in the garden. He wasn't just like standing by, watching. You'd remember Peter. He was the guy with the sword who cut your cousin's ear off. Like, hey, aren't you that guy? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that man. And then Luke tells us as soon as he says that, that Jesus looks right at him. They're in the high priest's courtyard. And he catches them in the eye. And their eyes strike one another. And maybe they're in the high priest's courtyard. Maybe that's when they were playing blind man's bluff with Jesus and he's being beaten. And Peter said, I'll never, I'll go with you to the death. And he realizes what's just happened. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. And since that time, how do you think Peter's been feeling? And he sees there's this miraculous catch and, and he comes back up to the shore. And did, did you read, did you look it all back to John chapter 14? And there was this, he already had fish, right? And there's this charcoal fire. 
There's only two times in the New Testament that a charcoal fire gets mentioned. So John chapter 18, when Peter was denying Jesus, and here. Some of you grew up, maybe you went to camp, or a summer camp, or maybe you went camping with your family. You know, a fire can have a distinct smell, right? And maybe you get on your clothes. And, and have you ever had this experience where, where you haven't thought about something for like years, and then you hear a song, or you smell a smell, or something, ha- and it triggers it, and like all floods back into your mind? I imagine that's what happened with Peter. When he gets to the, he gets to the shore, he's excited to see Jesus and he, the charcoal fire and the scent hits his nostrils and it all comes flooding back. His greatest failure. But they don't have the conversation yet. Jesus is so gracious. They sit, they eat fish together. And they're sitting around this fire. And if you've ever been camping or ever gone and had one of those experiences, you know what it's like. And sometimes there's silence and Sometimes you're telling stories, and they probably have told some stories, and there's been some silence, and in this moment of silence, Jesus addresses Peter. Did you notice how he addresses him, though? Go back to verse 15. It says, they had finished breakfast, and Jesus said, and John calls him Simon Peter. But then look at the words in the quotation. Jesus' words, Simon, son of John. The most formal version of his name. It's, if you were a kid, you remember when your parents would use your formal name? Yeah, you remember that? I was like, I remember my name is Scott Michael Lear. My mom, if you're calling me for dinner, I'm just like out in the neighborhood playing, Scott, come home. It's kind of fun. Like, oh, that's a welcoming. It's hospitable. I have coaches. Coaches call you Lear. Lear. And that's a certain tone to it. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Depends on how you're doing. But my mom had a tone when she'd use my full name. Scott Michael Lear. It's like, oh, my backside starts to sting right in that moment, right? Like, I know what's coming. If you read the New Testament, it's interesting. When Jesus first, first meets Simon, that was his name, he changes his life, and he changes his name, and he starts calling him Peter, the rock. But periodically through the New Testament, he refers to him as Simon. And what you see is a theme when he's messing up. He calls him Simon. Mark chapter 14, when he's supposed to be praying, and he's falling asleep. Simon, couldn't you stay awake for an hour? Luke chapter 22, He's going to warn him about, about Satan coming after him, and he wants to get his attention. Simon, Simon, Satan has to sift you, but I prayed for you. In fact, one Bible commentator, I brought a quote for you. One Bible commentator said this, it's as if our Lord called him by his former name when he was acting like his former self. And here he goes, Simon, son of John, and they're sitting in this charcoal fire, and if you're Peter, you're going, this is the moment. Now we're going to have to talk. The elephant in the room this is when it happens. And so then what does he say next? He questions him. He says, do you love me? Before we even read the rest of that, let me just give you this little life advice. If someone ever has to ask you if you love them, there's already a problem. Okay? Some of you husbands, I see your head shaking. All right, you got it. If your wife comes to you and says to you, do you love me? There's one of two problems. Either you messed up or she messed up. Okay? It's either, do you love me? Like the way you're acting, I don't know. Do you love me? Or... Do you love me? Because I'm about to tell you I wrecked the car. Do you love, let me remind you of your love for me. The fact that he asked this question shows there's a problem, but also don't miss this. It shows the heart of our Savior. He could ask him anything. Think about all the things Jesus could have asked here. Will you serve me? He's not going to ask him, will you serve me? Why didn't I ask him, will you serve me? Do you know why? Peter would just say, yeah, I'll serve you if you'll have me. Will you come back to me? 
He's not going to ask him, will you come back to me? If, you, if you'd have me, I'd come back to you. But he cares, before he cares about his behavior, he cares about his heart. Not that the behavior doesn't matter, but before he cares about his behavior, he cares about his heart. So he says, do you love me? But then notice the verse. Look at verse 15. Do you love me more than these? What are the these in this passage? And Greek doesn't help us here. Just so you know, the Greek grammar is not going to answer this question for you. And most Greek scholars, they debate between one of two options. There's multiple options, but it's usually one of two. One option is this. Remember, they're sitting here at this fire. They're having this breakfast. They're just finished up. And some people think that Jesus grabbed the nets, grabbed the fish, held it up, and said, do you love me more than these, more than these fish, more than these nets? Do you love me more than your old way of life, Peter? Do you love me more than your security blanket? Do you love me more than your own comfort? And that's a possibility. But I think, think in the context, and looking at what's happening here in this passage, everything about John chapter 21 parallels John chapter 18. The charcoal fire, only two places in the New Testament. Three times Peter denies Jesus, three times Jesus asks him this question. And so the context here is he's just boasted about how much he, I don't care if all these other men deny you, I'm with you. I think he's saying, do you love me more than these men love me? And there's a nuance here in this passage too that is in the Greek, is that Jesus actually uses a different word for love when he says, do you love me, than Peter uses when he answers, you know that I love you. Peter says back to him, I phileo you. That's affection. I've got affection for you. It's not, a, it's not a bad love. It's just more about his emotions. The word that Jesus used when he asked the question is agape love. Do you agape love me? Do you love me with a committed, devoted love? And Peter isn't in a position to talk about his commitment anymore. And so he says, you know, you know I have affections for you, Jesus. And then the second time he asked the question, he uses agape, agapao. Verb. So you agapao me? He says, you know I phileo you. The third time Jesus changes the word. And Jesus says, do you phileo me? He says, you, you know everything. You know, I'm not going to use the word commitment, but I do love you. I've got an affection for you, Jesus. See, Peter's pride has been destroyed, and that is a good thing. Because now God's grace can come flooding in. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And that takes us to our second point. Our second point is this, that God's grace restores your usefulness. God's grace restores your usefulness. And what is grace? What does it mean to have grace? And a lot of times we could, I bet I could give a definition of grace and 90% of you would agree with it. We like to talk about grace at church. We'll sing about grace, amazing grace. Most of us, we totally misapply grace. We think grace means pretending something never happened. That's not grace. That's just rephrasing what the world calls tolerance. We think grace is just when somebody's overly generous, somebody gives you something you didn't pay for, you didn't deserve or whatever. And I, I, that is a definition of grace, by the way. You're getting something you don't deserve. And, but we don't even know how to apply that. Like, you see these fires that are going on in the news, right? And some communities are being burned down in California. And you see that. And so just imagine with me that a, a home is burned down. And maybe somebody even dies in that, that fire, like a, a loved one. And then somebody comes in, maybe it's like a TV show or some organization or even some just generous person, and they, they build that family a house. That's gracious. They didn't pay for the house. But we think in our hearts, but they kind of deserved it. Like something bad happened for them. So let me just remind you of a couple other things we see in the news. Uh, about five or six years ago, there was a story of a guy that was, um, he was the captain of a ship, a very big boat. 
and the boat sank. It was his fault. It got too shallow. You remember this? It was a foreign thing that happened. Some of you are news people. You're just shutting down your head, yeah? Well, here's what happened. Uh, they actually had audio recording of that guy saving himself while the people on his boat were dying. That's not the responsibility of a captain. What about, well, let's give that guy a second chance, huh? Or, or what about there was a shooting this past week? I was watching the news. I saw some uh, medical first responders that were being interviewed in the news. And the medical first responders were talking about how they had to give care to the, they called him a shooter, but let's call him what he is, he's a murderer. Um, that's not about the weapon he's using, he's just killing people on purpose. And so they say, well, it was a professional obligation, we had to give him the, what if, what if they gave care to that guy and he lived while one of your family members died? There was the victim. Let's give that guy a second chance at life, right? What, I shared a story in, uh, when we first started the church in 2007, 2008 about a serial killer that had come to Christ after doing some awful things in a prison. And I, I called his attorney, verified the story. Bapt, he baptized him in a, in a drinking fountain at the prison. And I shared that story with our congregation. Do you know what happened? In my, in my small group, one of the guys in my small group said to me, I don't think that guy was really saved. Not after what he did. Can I tell you something about grace? You, you, those of you who take notes, you want to write this down. Grace is always scandalous. Grace is always scandalous. And some of us think that we just needed a little help from Jesus. One of the reasons, maybe one of the reasons why Peter can't say I love you with a totally committed, totally devoted love is because now he's seen a totally committed, totally devoted love. He heard about it in John chapter 13 when Jesus said, I'm going to show you the full extent of my love, and he washes their feet. He heard about it. That's something nice Jesus did for him. But when he sees Jesus being flogged, having a thorn crown put on his head, when he sees the cross being dropped into that hole, and before when many men would go insane, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know. He's seeing agapao love now. He's seeing committed, devoted love. And he's going, I can't say I've got, I can't say, Jesus, I love you the way you love me, but I do love you. He's ready to receive grace because you know what Peter deserved for what he did in denying Jesus? He deserved the cross. And do you know what you deserve for your sin, for your lying, for your lust, for your jealousy, for whatever you've done? Probably the thing that you thought about when I said there's an area you like, you'd have a do-over. Do you know what you deserve for that? And I pray, and I prayed this week that you wouldn't brush this aside when I say this comment. It sounds like such a church comment, but you deserve the cross. You deserve to be stripped naked, shamed, beaten, and murdered for your sin as the wrath of God is poured out on you, and you pay for it for all of eternity. But Jesus did that for you. That is grace. And until, until you realize the weight of your sin, you can't grasp the richness of God's grace. And until you grasp the richness of God's grace, how's he ever going to flush that pride out of your life? See, you, you weren't just the family that, that needed a new home built for them. You're the serial killer. Oh, I'm not that bad. That is a lie. You deserve the cross. And God gave you grace, and that's what he's doing here with Peter. Because did you notice he says to him in verses 15 through 17, not just do you love me, do you agape me, I phileo you, not you agape. He says, I got a plan for you, Peter. I got a plan for you. Feed my lambs, verse 15. Then look at verse 16. Tend my sheep or care for my sheep, some of your translations say. And then verse 17, feed my sheep. And, and this, is, this is why I believe that Peter was sinning in verses 1 through 14. Let me tell you what I mean. Verses 1 through 14, he goes back to fishing, Right? And some commentators will tell you, that's fine. Peter was a man of action. 
And so he's not going to just sit around in Galilee waiting for Jesus to show back up. So, of course, he's going to do something. Some people say that. I understand why they would say that. Some people say, well, he still had a family to take care of. He's got to make some money. (laughs) That wasn't working out real well before Jesus showed up. But I get what they're saying. But what I think that those commentators forget is a verse I've already alluded to. So Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Before Peter ever blew it, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. God's got a plan for your life. Satan's got a plan for your life. Jesus says, but I prayed for you. And when you turn back, and that's the key to the verse, I think. In order to turn back, you have to turn away, just FYI. Do you know what that tells us? There's so much in that verse. God's got a plan for us, even in our failure. Do you think a sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing God invested in Peter's life for three years and didn't have a plan Knowing he knew Peter, was, he said to Peter ahead of time, three times, it wasn't like he just goes, I think he might turn away, I got this feeling about this. He goes, no, exactly what's going to happen. Before morning, three times, you're going to deny you ever knew me. But he already told him, and I got a plan for you in that. When you turn back, strengthen your brothers. What's he doing in verses 1 through 14? He's not strengthening his brothers. He's taking them back to their old way of life too. Just tempting for all of us, isn't it? Especially if you come to Christ later in life. Things get difficult. You start to doubt Jesus. You wonder about his provision. You wonder about his care for you. Well, then Peter, Peter saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus wins. He's got victory. But then he's acting like, but I don't know if it really applies to me. Ever been there? Some of you have blown it before. Blown it pretty bad. And, and maybe you've thought to yourself, I mean, I'm still here. I'm still alive. And God can use me, but not for like real ministry. I don't know where you got that, but it is not from the Bible. Maybe your church tradition, maybe it's just lies that you've believed. I don't know. And I'm not trying to say that anybody should rush a restoration process and nobody restores themselves. Notice this is Jesus that's restoring this man here. But if you're still here, God's still got a plan for you. And God's grace restores you to his usefulness. And if you think that your failure made that impossible, like that's not even, just look at life experience. Look at outside of even Christendom. Just go to the secular world and think about how many people that by the world's standards of success failed first. Michael Jordan, some of you basketball fans, you heard of that guy? Yeah, none of the, tar- none of the, uh, the wolf pack will say anything. I don't know who that is. He never existed. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, he's a baseball player. Somebody said over here, nice. <laughs> Matt, nah, wolf pack. That's a wolf pack guy. I know who that is. That was Matt. Uh, some people would say it's not even arguable. The greatest basketball player of all time didn't make his high school basketball team. <laughs> Have you heard of Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill, those of you history people, failed sixth grade, didn't win office first couple times, becomes a prime minister of the United Kingdom. Yes, you're welcome, the real Pastor Scott. I mentioned the United Kingdom. <laughs> During the Second World War. Let me read you a quote by Winston Churchill. He says this, and I don't know if he just said it. I don't think he thought through a lot of these things, but he's a great speaker. This is a, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never. <laughs> How about a synonym in there somewhere? Like, <laughs> in nothing, great or small, large or petty, petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. How many of you here have read a book by Dr. Seuss? And if you're not a parent and you raise your hand, that's weird, but okay. Maybe when you were a kid, that's all right, that's all right. Do you know that Dr. Seuss, before he got published, was rejected by 27 publishers? And so you see, even even outside of Christianity, God has a plan for failure in people's lives. But in Christianity, he exclusively only uses failures. 
Go through the Bible. Moses was a murderer, a fugitive, on the run, and hiding when God called him to come lead his people. David. Do you, you, you know about David? Abraham is the father of the three major religions in our world, Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity, the father of the faith of all of them. The guy's an idol worshiper and a liar. God only uses failures. And you don't have to go through the whole Bible. We can go through the whole Bible, but just in the, in the resurrection stories. We talked about last week, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is the first person Jesus appears to. And some people think he made this story up. A woman's testimony is not even valid in court. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. Grace. Do you know the, the first time that Jesus calls the disciples his brothers is after they all fall away? It's in John chapter 20, verse 17 through 18. He's speaking to Mary Magdalene and says, go to my brothers. Tell them, my father, their father, both of us. My God is your God. Your God is my God. We're brothers. It's grace, grace, grace. God still has a plan for you, even in your failure. In fact, the failure is part of the plan. And some of you are so stuck on the thing that happened to you in the past or the thing that you did in the past that you can't get past that and realize that God has a plan for you. I, was watching, I watched a, a clip this week of uh, Elizabeth Smart. Do you know who Elizabeth Smart is? I don't want to retell her whole story. She's kidnapped. She's kind of known as like the kidnapped lady. And uh, she got kidnapped. She was 14 years old, held captive for nine months. When she got back to her parents, you know what her mom said to her? So they stole nine months from you. Don't let them take more. You know, God's got a plan for you. But Satan's got a plan for you too. John chapter 10, verse 10, he wants to steal from you, kill you. He's already been robbing some of you of God's plan for your life like he was doing with Peter here. And then Jesus steps in. He has an encounter with the God who restores and God who gives second chances. So here's the reality. What we've got through this passage is all, it's the love of God, and he's showing them. It's what Paul says later in Romans chapter 8. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Not angels, principalities, not death, nothing, not a failure you make. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Because here's the reality of God's love. God's love never runs out. It runs after you. And some of you need to hear these words today. God is coming after you. God is pursuing you. If you've got breath in your lungs, I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, God's coming after you. And you're on a collision course with an omnipotent God who's going to destroy your pride so you can be humbled and receive his grace. And when that grace comes in, then the healing comes in. And you want to talk about second chances? You're going to hear more about this next week. But, but he tells them, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, care for my people, care for your brothers. And you want to know the calling didn't change? The calling didn't change because John chapter 1, verse 43, follow me. And then he says in verse 19, after he tells him exactly how he's going to die, he says, follow me. Do you know what he tells him how he's going to die? We'll read it, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. <laughs> Ever seen kids dress themselves? That's funny. And you walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It was prophecy about the crucifixion of Peter. Church tradition tells us what happens with Peter is he's going to be crucified for preaching the gospel. And he says, not, no, I never knew that man. He says, I am not worthy to die like my Savior. And so they crucify him upside down. God's got a second chances. He doesn't get to go back in history. And we oftentimes remember that big failure in Peter's life. But, but some of us, it's the more subtle stuff. What about verses 1 through 14 when he went back to his old way of life and he thought that he couldn't be used by God? And some of you, I just ask you this question today as we wrap up. Do you love Jesus more now than you ever have? If not, why not? What changed? It wasn't Jesus, just so you know. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
It wasn't his plan for you. He didn't have to call an audible in the middle because you did something stupid. He still got the same plan. Come follow me. You follow me. I got a plan for you. I want to use you to impact other people's lives. Tend my sheep. Care for my sheep. I got a plan for you to reach lost people. But you, you come to me. Come to follow me. Some of us, we think about these victories, like it's got to be these mountaintop experiences and these big lows, and it's like Peter denying Jesus and Peter being used by Jesus in the book of Acts right after this. And, and what about verses 1 through 14? A lot of times these battles are won with Jesus. Like, we're either going towards them or we're walking away from them. And some of you, it's not this big failures, but it's more like a drift that's happened. You ever been out of the lake? We're talking about a fishing passage. You ever been out of the lake and you get in a raft and the raft's by the dock? And you sit in the raft for a little, you didn't paddle, you didn't do anything, but you look back on the dock, you've drifted way away from the dock. Let me tell you something, the dock didn't go anywhere. You drifted. Jesus is the rock. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has a plan for your life, and he has a plan to use you, even using your failure. And it was part of the plan. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together in your name. Father God, I pray I pray for your healing words to be spoken into hearts today. For those who need to know, maybe they've blown it. Maybe someone they've loved has blown it. Maybe, maybe they've thought that they were sidelined or they're like JV team or something. God, will you wipe away things that aren't true? Will you speak truth into their hearts, into their lives? God, God will you meet with them? Will you encounter them in these moments as we sing these words? Will you speak words into their hearts? Father, if there's somebody in here who doesn't know your son Jesus as Savior, I pray that they would realize that you are a good father, you are a loving God, and you're calling them into relationship with them, and that they would trust your son Jesus as Savior right now in this moment. They'd acknowledge their sin. The Bible says that we're all failures. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. And the wages of our sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And God wants to give you that gift today. And what you need to do is call upon him and receive it. The Bible also says, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you will be, it's a promise by God, that you will be saved. You'll be saved from your sin, rescued from your sin. And maybe that's the collision course you've been on. It's coming into this encounter with God right now. And you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. If you need to do that, will you just pray, confess your sin to God, and ask him to be your Savior in these moments?